1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a hardbound black Bible somewhere close by in the pew, and 1 Corinthians 16 is on page 962 of that Bible. Uh, there are a number of things in, your, uh, in the bulletin that I did not mention and will not mention. I will only mention two things that were there. One is that this afternoon, if you are new to Gray Road, if you're just visiting or you've been around for a while and you'd like to know what we're about and what we believe and how we operate and all those kinds of things, I invite you to come this afternoon at 4.30 uh, for today because uh, we have the meet and greet with the Shingletons that will be in the fellowship hall. Uh, today, uh, that membership class will happen. Uh, you can go through either of these doors, and there's a room back here, the music room, and we will meet in there at 4.30. Uh, and so I'd love to have you join those who have signed up uh, to be there. And also with regard to membership, Last week, I mentioned uh, Hugh and Brenda Lawson coming through our membership process, have been recommended by our elders, and so um, as to try and not make another mistake and, and leave these kinds of things hanging, uh, if you are a member of Gray Road and welcome them into our fellowship, will you just simply say amen? Amen. 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 Welcome, Hugh. Welcome, Brenda. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I will read the, the whole of the chapter, uh, and then we will begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit of God says through the Apostle Paul. Now concerning the collection of, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus uh, were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. 
All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, now would you speak to us so that we might hear your word clearly and believe it fully and obey it immediately. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, At the beginning of each week, as I seek to open the Bible and prepare to preach, one of the things that I seek to do is to find what I just, in my own mind, call the main idea. What is that driving truth that connects this paragraph, this uh, sentence, this chapter, even this phrase? What is it that in this context this author is seeking to say? It's actually a good discipline for me, and uh, it would be a good discipline for you as well as you do your own Bible reading and Bible study to think about what's written, why it's there, uh, what comes before it, what comes after it, why is it said that way, what does it say about God, about Christ, about sin, about faith, all of these things. And then just try to summarize it in a sentence or two. It's a good discipline because it helps you to think about the whole and bring it into something uh, that explains the whole in a brief way. This week, I mean, I try to do that every week, and this week I just want to go ahead and put it right out on the table. I didn't do it this week, all right? I tried. I tried very hard to do it. If I were to divide up 1 Corinthians 16 into a few different texts, I think I would have gotten there. And so, but on my, my assignment for this week, it says 1 Corinthians 16, Now, you can do a number of things with that. You can say, well, I'm just going to do this one sentence, and you can do the rest for your homework, which is fine because most of us need a little homework, right, to keep us going. However, I didn't do that. I decided I would take the whole chapter, so I just kept reading and reading and reading and praying and meditating and asking the Lord to help me to see some kind of binding agent here. What is it that holds this together? And then finally... I came to one verse that I think holds the whole thing together, kind of like in a Rubik's Cube. You know these these puzzles that are handheld, and they have the colors on each side, and you twist the sides so that you try to make each side one color. Each side has nine pieces. Well, if you take that thing apart, you'll find there's a small frame on the inside of the Rubik's Cube. And they slide, and these pieces slide and click together in such a way that the frame actually holds the whole thing together. Now, I don't know that because I Googled it. I know that because I got terribly frustrated with Rubik's Cubes as a kid. And I would take the thing apart. I'll show this thing who's boss. And I just, and I cheated at a puzzle nobody cares about just so I could put it together, and I didn't even show it to anybody. I just wanted to see the whole thing put together. It's terribly annoying when your Rubik's Cube is out of sorts, and I'm not good at putting it together. That's how depraved I was, by the way, cheating at a puzzle that nobody cares about. Um, But anyway, there's this frame in the middle of the Rubik's Cube that holds the whole thing together. And in 1 Corinthians 16, there are lots of pieces, lots of colorful pieces, as it were. 
But I think the one piece that holds all the others together, the frame of the Rubik's Cube, is verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. I think that's the frame that holds the whole thing together. It's like glue. It's not the main driving idea of every sentence. But all of those things come back to this. The all, all that you do. Let all that you do. And Paul shows us four things that are part of this all that you do that ought to be done in love. Now, we've seen love before in this letter. Chapter 8 begins, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Then in chapter 13, what we commonly call the love chapter, Paul paints a portrait of love, not simply to inspire them or give them, you know, holy goosebumps or anything, but actually to show them this is what you're not like, Corinthians. You are loveless. And then here in chapter 16, he tells this loveless church, he leaves it ringing in the air, as it were, let all that you do be done in love. He assures them of his love for them in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Now, if you read the whole letter and then you read that, you would say that's amazing because it seems like all he is 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 frustrated with these people. And yet at the beginning he says, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, and at the end he says, I love you. He wouldn't have written the letter if he didn't love them. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. And here the apostle is writing all of these correctives, not out of a sense of moral superiority, not out of a sense of looking down his nose at them, but out of love. My love be with you all. And then, not only that, he warns them, verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And so he shows them the way forward. Let all that you do be done in love. Love should permeate the church. Love should be the hand that greets all who come in the door. Love should be the aroma that fills the air. Love should be the flavor of the coffee in the cafe. Love should be the melody that we leave humming when we walk out. Let all that you do be done in love. And as I said, there are four things in this chapter that are part of that all. The first is giving to the poor. Giving to the poor. The first four verses of chapter 16 speak of a collection that's taken for Christians in Jerusalem, and they're living in poverty. We're not told why here, but most likely it's because of the persecution that's going on <coughs> against Christians. You know, Jerusalem was a poor town in general, but when aid would come from the Jews who lived outside Jerusalem, Jewish Christians would get none of it. They would get passed over. Not only that, but if you operated, you know, if you remember those old, uh, those blue pages, you know, if you wanted to know who the Christian mechanic was on your street, you'd turn to that. didn't mean he was the best mechanic. It just meant when he messed up your car, he'd ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's all that means. And so, but, but they had these blue pages. Well, if you're living in Jerusalem and you're in the blue pages, nobody's coming to your business. Nobody wants to come to your booth and trade with you. And so their income and their lives uh, are affected by the persecution. And Paul calls on these Christians 
to help by giving, to give systematically, to give intentionally. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, see, he doesn't want them, you know, scrounging through the couch cushions on Sunday morning before they go to church because they know the Apostle Paul's going to be there and he's taking up a collection. They don't want them walking in the building thinking, oh, what kind of cash do I have in my wallet? They don't want them looking in the pantry for that old canned good that they're never going to eat anyway, but it feels generous to give it to somebody else. Maybe this canned spam in some kind of sauce will be appreciated by other people. He doesn't say that. He says every week, every family, think about what you're going to give. Think about the plight of those in Jerusalem. Think about how you can help and set it aside week by week so that when he gets there, essentially, the box truck is already going to be full and ready to hit the road to go to Jerusalem. And you're not merely… we shouldn't merely do it out of a sense of duty, but out of love. In his second letter to them, he's going to say to them, each one must give, speaking of the same collection, by the way, each one must give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Love for God and love for others makes giving cheerful. You don't give like this. You give in joy. On the night that um, Susan and I met, uh, as many of you will know, I was singing on a riverboat. And uh, that story will have to wait. But later that evening, we were talking about our shared musical interests and found that we shared Harry Connick Jr. Uh, as one that we like to listen to. And so that night on that trip, uh, we weren't in our hometown. We were a few hours away. I happened to have with me a copy of uh, Red Light, Blue Light, his album, or Blue Light, Red Light. Sorry, it's Blue Light, Red Light. And uh, and so I loaned it to her. Now, I had no idea what a smooth move it is to loan a CD to a girl you want to see again because it didn't dawn on me until later that loaning it to her meant I had to see her again <clears throat> in order to get the CD back. Well, she loved the CD. I loved the CD. Well, over the years, this, as CDs went, right, they get all scratched and beat up, and I didn't have the cover anymore. Well, one day I decided, this is a few years back, I decided to find a new copy. I got the new copy and I framed it, you know, with the cover in one side and the CD in the other, and I gave it to her for the 20th anniversary of that night that we met. Now, she opened it. She was a surprise to her. She opened it. She was overjoyed by it, said what a great gift it was. Now, imagine if in her saying what a great gift it was, I said, well, I had to get you something. I'm supposed to be generous and thoughtful, so there. Do you think that that would have moved her heart? Not at all. I didn't get it to her. I didn't give it to her because I had to. I gave it to her because I love her. What's interesting is that love, even though it adds no tangible thing to a gift, love makes the gift better. Love makes the gift better. You see, we were poor 
in spirit. We were spiritually bankrupt, and when Jesus, when Jesus found us and gave us the riches of salvation, but our hearts aren't moved because Jesus did His duty on the cross. Our hearts are moved because He loved us and gave Himself up for us. God didn't demonstrate His duty in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, because God just forgives. That's His job. No, God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Love makes the gift better. And these men and women are to give generously. They are to give systematically. They are to give intentionally, but they are to give in love, out of love for their brothers and sisters. And we are to imitate the Lord Jesus, and we are to obey this command in how we give. Are we to give intentionally? Yes. Are we to give systematically? Yes. Are we to give obediently? Yes. But we give in love. Love for God. Love for others. Whether it is our general giving, whether it is giving to our benevolence fund, whether it is giving to the person that we see holding the sign at the intersection. We give out of a sense of love for God and love for others. We give on purpose. We let all that we do be done in love. That's what Paul tells them, let all that you do, including giving to the poor. The second thing is, to, is caring for God's servants, caring for God's servants. There are several mentions uh, in the chapter of travel plans. Paul says he'll come to Corinth, just not now. Um, He says in verse 9, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, in Ephesus he means, and there are many adversaries. If you want to read about that, you actually can in Acts chapter 19, uh, his opportunity and adversaries. But Apollos isn't coming either. Verse 12, concerning Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. We don't know why. We don't know if he had opportunity as well. We don't know whether he just wanted to wait, but he says he will come. He will come when he has opportunity. So even though they're not coming, some people are coming. Timothy is coming in verse 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, Timothy, as you probably know, is a young friend of Paul's. Paul has mentored him. Paul assigned him to actually be in Ephesus and to oversee the ministry there. But he's prone to be timid, to be faint hearted. And so Paul has to tell him when Paul writes to Timothy directly, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. It's, it's possible that Timothy, Timothy has some sort of stomach problem going on, whether it's because of his timidity or just because he has some kind of chronic illness. He's a bit sickly. So Paul tells him uh, in another place to, you know, stop drinking water and drink wine for your stomach to help it. But through all of Timothy's struggles in life. He's faithful in ministry. Look at the end of verse 10. He is doing the work of the Lord as I am. He's not doing the work of the Lord in a lesser way than Paul is. He is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy is coming. But not only is Timothy coming, there's this trio of 
Corinthians who came to Paul who brought news of the church, and they're coming back. One of them is Stephanus. The others are Fortunatus and Achaicus. He says of Stephanus that he was the one, they were the, for his household were the first converts in Achaia. Paul mentions at the beginning of the letter they were the first, uh, his household was the first that he, one of the only ones he baptized there in Achaia. Just as a side note, when we're thinking about baptism, this word household, he says he baptized them there. And if you only read it there, you might think, well, these, there must have been little babies involved as well. What household doesn't have babies? But then look at what it says about the household here. The household of Stephanus have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Little babies don't do that. These must be people of a certain age then. So most likely household here is limited to those who are adults, the household who are believing, household adults who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a side note. But they're coming as well. And look at how Paul describes their presence. <coughs> Into verse 17, they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. In other words, Paul would want the whole Corinthian church to come to him. The whole church. But he couldn't have them. So these three made up for it. <coughs> and what did they do for him? <coughs> They refreshed his spirit. Excuse me. <coughs> now, this doesn't seem like much of anything, does it? Paul says, I'm not coming. Apollos isn't coming. But Timothy's coming, and this Corinthian trio are coming. Make sure you receive them and help them and love them and all these things. That may not seem like much, but it's actually quite remarkable. Think about what's going on in Corinth. These people are divided over their loyalties to preachers. They've got billboards up for Apollos and Cephas and Paul. They're holding rallies. Somebody get out that last sermon that Paul preached. Let's read through that one again. Oh, no, I'm not going to the Paul gathering. I'm going to the Apollos gathering. Oh, yeah, well, Cephas walked by my house the other day. I mean, these are the kinds of things. Cephas didn't walk by his house. But you see what I'm saying? This is the kind of thing that's going on. But what is Paul saying? None of these people that you're ready to divide over and fight over are going to be there. But they're not the only servants of God. Care for Timothy. Care for your brothers who are coming back. I mean, these people are nobodies. They're not conference speakers. They don't have podcasts. They don't, they're not social media influencers. They haven't published a single book. But Paul says, love them. Let all that you do be done in love, including helping Timothy on his way. Give recognition to these three men. This kind of word from Paul does a couple of things, doesn't it? First, it rebukes us. I think it rebukes us uh, for buying into kind of the celebrity Christian culture. Oh, have you heard what so-and-so said on that? You've got to hear what so-and-so said on that. 
Oh, have you read this book? It's the latest from him. I've got all of his books. I don't have anybody else's books. I just have his because he's the guy to listen to. It rebukes us for that kind of thing. But the second thing is, I think it encourages us because most of us are not even going to be anywhere near a spotlight. We're all in the shadows. Here we are in central Indiana. We're meeting. There's a few hundred of us. Good night. We're in a country of 349 million. What? <laughs> we're, just, we're just a bunch of clay pots. Nobody's sitting around worshiping the Lord. Nobody's in the world's eyes, right? There aren't reporters lining up outside to ask us about how things went inside. And even beyond that, some of us do have the privilege and call to stand and to teach and to preach, and whether it's in a Sunday school class or whether we preach here or wherever it is. But so many of you serve in ways that are completely invisible. I would give you many examples, but bringing them into the light, we don't, we don't, we don't, want, we don't want men's recognition. The God who sees in secret, all of you who are serving in secret, God sees in secret. You may be tucked away in a finance office, right? But God sees. God knows. So when you stumble across these people who aren't looking for any kind of spotlight, honor them. Thank them. Thank the Lord for them. Because quite honestly, that's most of us. Let all that you do be done in love. And that kind of pattern to honor those that aren't necessarily spotlight people, that follows the pattern that God set Himself, doesn't it? Back in chapter 1, what is it that Paul said of these Corinthians? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. Let love let all that you do be done in love, including caring for God's servants, especially the ones that don't, they don't walk in the spotlight ever. Third, in persevering in the faith. Look at verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, Paul often gives short commands like this at the end of his letters, and all four of these call for perseverance. So he says, first, be watchful means be alert, be ready, be awake, ready for what's coming. In the New Testament, where, I mean, a lot of what Jesus, when Jesus talks about being watchful, He's talking about the return, be watchful for the return of Christ. But as Paul and the other apostles are instructing the church, we're to be watchful with regard to the devil and his attacks. We're to be watchful in prayer and staying diligent at it and not dozing off in it. We're to be diligent, we're to be watchful in the matter of temptation knowing that we are not immune to it. Then stand firm in the faith. Don't let, don't let the philosophies of your day creep in, Corinth. Don't, don't let the ideologies that shape culture shape you. Don't let the so-called wisdom of the influencers have authority in your lives. Stand firm in the faith, don't let go of what you have been taught, or as he said at the end of chapter 15, be steadfast, immovable, 
Why? Chapter 3, verse 19. The wisdom of the world is folly with God. Act like men. Now, this is not a statement of gender. This is an idiom for being courageous. Being courageous. Don't back down. Don't give in. Don't be cowardly. Have courage. And then he says, be strong. Strong, courageous. You remember when Joshua was going into the land, this land that's going to be full of enemies, but God is eventually going to give victory. What does God tell him? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's what Paul's saying. Don't let the movers and the shakers intimidate you. Don't panic. Don't quake in your boots just because somebody wants to cancel this or that. Be strong. Be courageous. Paul's a bit like a leader here called preparing his troops for battle, isn't he? I mean, I hear these things, and I can't help it. My mind goes immediately to the Lord of the Rings. I can't help it. It's like there's an instinct in me it's wonderful, but it takes me directly to the Lord of the Rings, not this time to the book, but to the movie, to Aragorn preparing these men who have gathered, who are literally quaking in their boots as uh, this horde of monstrous enemy and evil comes marching toward them. And so, he's going to speak to them, and he tells them to hold their ground. He says, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. And then he goes through a number of things. This may fall completely apart one day, but it's not going to be this day. It is not this day. It is not this day. And then he says, this day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand. That's the kind of thing Paul's saying. But notice what Aragorn said and what Paul said are actually similar because what Aragorn said is, by all that you hold dear on this good earth. And then Paul follows up all of these vigilant commands with this, let all that you do be done in love. You see, it's not out of anger that we go charging in ministry. It's not out of anger. It's out of love. These, these men were going to go into this battle out of love for their families, out of love for their countries, out of love for the very world in which they live for its good. And Paul calls us to perseverance because of love, love for God, love for others. Not, it's not because we hate the world or hate the, even the philosophies of the world that we persevere. The main thing that drives us is love for God, love for truth, love for the gospel, love for Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is love that drives us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us. You will never persevere if your motivation is in hate. You will burn out because nobody can hate that much. It will become self-destructive. I have seen it happen in people's lives. They hate somebody or something so much, and eventually it just corrodes their own soul to keep hating. You'll never persevere if you're motivated by hate, but you'll never quit if you're motivated by love. Never. Not because somebody else loved me, but because God loves me. 
because Christ's love never changes. And so I love Him and serve Him and persevere in the faith. So we let all that you do be done in love, in giving to the poor, in caring for God's servants, in persevering in the faith, and fourthly, in greeting one another. Verse 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord, and all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if you just went back, and this is uh, Prisca is just shorthand for Priscilla. If you were to go and to see all the places, it seems that every time uh, that Aquila and Priscilla are up, uprooted and moved somewhere else, they just start a church in their home. I mean, that's what happens. They go to a new city, church in their home. They're in Rome, church in their home. They're in Ephesus, church in their home. They're back in Rome, church in their home. They are just, they're deeply committed to the mission of God. Uh, and to seeing <clears throat> churches uh, planted and be healthy. But that will have to uh, suffice for that. But this notion of greeting one another with a holy kiss, the kiss is, uh, this kind of kiss is foreign to us today. I mean, parents uh, and grandparents kiss their children, vice versa. But we primarily associate kisses with romantic love, which is why people balk at this kind of thing. If you go to other places in the world, uh, you, you will find yourself kissed, probably. Uh, it will surprise you. Uh, but th- this is not an unusual custom when you think about the entire world. In fact, romantic love was not even the primary purpose of kisses in Paul's day. It was a greeting of warm friendship and of respect, much akin to a hug is today. Or if you know this, men, you know you shake hands with one and you hug with the other. I mean, that's, you warm, it's warm. So when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, he's calling for warm friendship and for affection and for respect in the church, among the members of the church. Now, he does this in a number of places, but it's particularly poignant here in Corinth, isn't it? Because they're fighting with each other. They're fighting over preachers. They're fighting over spiritual gifts. They're taking one another to court. They're separating the somebodies from the nobodies. There is a cold chill in the air in Corinth, and Paul is saying we need to change the thermostat. We need to turn up the heat. Jesus said, by, all, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. You see, for the church of Jesus Christ, for for Gray Road Baptist Church, it is not simply enough that our doctrine is right. It must be right, but that is not enough. It's not enough that we sing the right songs that, that have truth in them. We must do that, but that is not enough. We must have things in order, but that's not enough. If our fellowship together isn't marked by love, what good is it? It's not at all. If it's marked by love, do we even really understand the love of God for us? No, we don't. Just read through 1 John, and you will see people who keep touting their love for God but aren't loving other people, they're just a bunch of liars. You can't love God without loving His people. In fact, God's love enables us to love others. We love because He first loved us. 
And so as we greet, well, just think, I want you to think about how you've greeted one another this morning. Are there people you bypassed? Were you just so focused on getting to your seat and doing your thing and I'm getting to the, you know, I'm going through my Sunday routine. I got the, got the kids dropped off, check, did this, check, did that, check. Dear friends, this is not the only place that we ought to be greeting one another warmly. We ought to be showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. But believe you me, the doorway to the doorway of your home has to actually be warmth and affection here. You're not just going to call up somebody you just like, I've been bypassing you for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I'd love to have you in my home. So just put it into practice. Be warm toward one another. I know the warmth of so many of you. But even that, even that way, even the way we greet one another, who knows what you walked in with this week, right? I don't know. Who knows what I walked in with? You don't know. And yet how good it is when God uses someone to just warmly greet you and take a moment to give a hug and a short conversation, interest, love toward one another. I mean, it's a common, simple, customary greeting, but it is part of the all. The all. So give to the poor in love. Care for God's servants in love. Persevere in the faith in love. Greet one another in love. These are high demands, aren't they? And that's only a partial list. <laughs> because what Paul said is let all that you do be done in love. Parent your children in love. Interact with your neighbor who keeps wanting to fuss about where the, where the, where the boundaries are of his property and yours. Interact with him in love. Walk into your workplace this week in love. Teach the children Sunday school in love. Cradle babies back in the nursery in love. Love is what must permeate our whole fellowship. Because God has loved us, we must love one another. But how are we going to do that? How in the world is all that we do going to be done in love? How? Well, there's an answer here, and it's in Paul's prayer for them at the end of the chapter. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. God's grace saves us. It's glorious. We were dead in our sin, living in darkness, deserving His judgment, but God's grace reaches down and forgives and brings us into the light and, and saves us through faith in Jesus through faith in His death, His resurrection. But for many, sadly, that is where grace ends. But not so. God's grace not only saves us, it strengthens us to live for Jesus daily. 
We need God's grace if we're going to do all that we do in love. God must give us strength. Here's the thing. Everything in this letter, I mean, there's been a lot in this letter, hasn't there? Everything in this letter is impossible for you to do without grace. Everything God calls us to do is impossible without grace. But nothing God calls us to do is impossible with grace. Nothing God calls you and me to do is impossible with His sustaining, strengthening grace. His grace is sufficient for us. And by His grace, we can heed this command which holds this chapter together and let all that we do be done in love. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before You, thankful for Your love for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank You for the grace that saves us and the grace that will strengthen us as we seek to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, that You will work in us by Your grace to will and to do Your good purpose. We ask You, Lord, that this command, this command to let all that we do be done in love, We pray for your grace to obey it. We are thankful that your grace is enough, that it is greater than our sin, that your grace has brought us safely thus far, and it will lead us home. And so, God, give us grace to obey your word, to please you, to imitate your Son. We pray in His name. Amen. We're going to...